Worldwide. I'm your host, Anthony Castrio, and we have with us today my friend Richard Kong. How are you doing today, Richard? Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Richard, um, well, we actually have a little bit of a history as we both went to the University of Maryland, and we were even in the same kind of student-run startup, startup incubator there called Startup Shell. Um, mm -hmm. Richard started a company called Gravity, then he went on to work at Scale. Um, now you're doing a new company called Shine With, um, but I was hoping you could start mm -hmm. off just by giving us the story of Gravity, how that got started, and how it grew. Yeah, so uh, I first started Gravity, I think, roughly the winter of maybe 2015, uh, maybe 2014, oh, sorry, winter of 2014, early 2015. Um, and like at the time, it was roughly like when I was trying to do my SATs and uh, being someone who has like grown up, grown up like a fair bit in China, I had like really poor grammar and reading skills. And so I thought, hey, like, uh, what's the best way to like really practice like how to get better in English? And the thing that I came up with was, hey, like, why not translate these like Chinese novels into English? And so that's where like this whole idea even like got, got, got started from. And then from there, so I was like, hey, so now I've like translated roughly like five, 10,000 words. I don't really want that to go to waste. Like, why don't I publish them online? And it got picked up by Reddit. And then from there, it's just like grown really quickly. Um, so so it grew, I think, uh, like probably like, it's like five, 10,000 users daily uh, by the start of my senior year. And that's okay. when I guess like I thought like, hey, like this, yeah, high school. Yeah, and like uh, this was when I thought, hey, like uh, this could probably be a business. And so I like started think thinking a bit more about like, hey, how can I grow this? Hey, how can I like really push things forward? Which meant like bringing on other translators, editors, setting the whole system for that. And uh, yeah, I just like kept on growing. Um, like every month we'd have maybe like 10, 15, 20% growth in terms of users. And uh, in the summer of my freshman year in college, like this would be summer of 2017, I uh, sold the company to this, I guess like, uh, like the publishing arm of Tencent, which is called uh, China Literature, which uh, then itself went on to IPO roughly, I think two months after they acquired me. So yeah, um, and then I guess like uh, a bit of, I guess like uh, like the, the end of my story is I stayed on with the parent company for about two years, two and a half years. Uh, I worked uh, primarily, uh, I guess, like keeping gravity running, but then I also helped them, I guess, like expand internationally. So, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty big story told in a very succinct way, um, probably because it already feels yeah. like <laughs> like um, old hat to you since it, it happened a while ago. But I was wondering maybe if we could start by digging into um, like early days at Gravity. Um, what, what yeah. was like that very first version of the product and how did it come to be picked up by Reddit and start getting attention? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, I was really lucky in the fact that I went to like a STEM-based high school. Mm -hmm. So I knew a lot about coding and I knew a lot about, hey, like uh, what it takes to like set up a website on the internet. Um, although uh, I think the first version of the website was basically just like this like WordPress.com website that I like basically spun up in like five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, so I guess early days. Uh, so we first started getting traction, I think about like a week after I started posting my, I guess, 
translations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it got picked up through Reddit because I was actually translating something someone else had already translated before. Mm-hmm. And I guess like uh, he had stopped at some point, although he had amassed a, a like some like de- decent sized audience. And then I guess like all that audience went over to me because I was uh, soon like surpassing him in my, I guess like uh, total length of translations. Um, and so early on for me, it was much more of a hobby. I still very distinctly remember the day I turned on donations mm. because that was what, like, I think maybe two, three months after I was like doing this, I had been doing like roughly maybe two, three hours a day. Uh, so it was like pretty committed because of like mm. the tra- traffic that I saw, but I never thought about this as like, Hey, I-, I can actually make money off of this. And so, uh, I think this was like sometime in, I'll, I want to say March when I turned on the donations for the first time, like that first day I got like $327. And that was when I realized, Hey, wow, like this could actually be making money. This could actually be something bigger than just a hobby. And so I think that's when I started like shifting gears a little bit and like putting in a lot more time to it, uh, really like digging deep into like, uh, translating as much as I could, um, and doing that. And I think, most of the early days was basically just me translating, me publishing, me responding to comments, editing, everything was done by me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think it was just like really down in the weeds. And then slowly when I realized, hey, like this could be a business, I, I started like thinking about, hey, like what if we could bring on other translators? What about some other novels that we could start doing and whatnot? And like slowly that I guess like system got built. So was it always monetized just through donations or did you eventually have like um, a business model around it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, even to the point where I left, I think we still didn't really fully flesh out like a correct business model. Mm-hmm. Um, so early, early days, like I think this was like pre, uh, pre-2016 um, was, uh, sorry, sorry. It's like uh, pretty much all of 2015 and then some part of 2016 um that was pretty much all donations and so at at, um at this point i think donations provided a really clear outlet for uh i guess like direct contribution Mm -hmm. so the way we set it up was uh i would do roughly three to five chapters a week so that would be like roughly anywhere from six to ten to twelve thousand words per week and then if i got like say like 80 bucks in donations, I would do an extra chapter that week. Mm. So that might be like the sixth chapter, the seventh, eighth, ninth, and then so on. And so uh, it really became like, hey, like every chapter after the third one each week was basically uh, me making money. Um, and so uh, that was the model that we had for like a, quite a while. And then we realized like we had a lot of traffic and the way we thought about like, monetizing that traffic was through ads mm-hmm. and so we started off with like a very like bare bones like adsense um and then we i guess like moved on towards like uh talking with other uh i guess they're called ad publishers who are basically the middlemen between people who want to run campaigns and like people uh who i guess like have a lot of audience like us mm-hmm. and so uh we started working a lot more with them until I think uh, roughly like I think 20, 20 end of 2016, where we basically handed all of our, I guess, like ad, uh, ad 
inventory to this uh, middle agent who's called uh, Monetize More. They basically handled all the ads for us. And like uh, for most of our life, we were using uh, CPM-based ads. Mm -hmm. And so uh, with the amount of tra traffic that we were getting, so we were getting roughly like 2.5 to 3 million PAUs a day uh, at our peak. Um, and so like, at, let's say like a $1 CPM, which is like our goal, that would be like 2,500 to $3,000 a day. And just, just in terms of ad revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, from there on out, we still kept the donation piece, but then we realized like it was becoming a smaller, smaller chunk of what we, I guess, like had, had hoped it would be. Mm -hmm. And so us, uh, I think it was like, this started like right before the acquisition and like uh, grew really quickly afterwards. And so like, this was our like channel where we started uh, working on a more subscription-based model where we would, uh, basically be like, Hey, like if you want to read ahead, pay us five bucks a month and you can read maybe five, 10 chapters ahead. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the start of something that I think could have been a really strong business model. And so like that grew really, really quickly. Yeah. I think, I think it went from like one K a month to like maybe almost probably a near a hundred K a month, uh, by the time I left. Um, I think that that was probably the right way to like move down this i guess like overall path the very early business model was just donations and you're releasing extra chapters if there were donations sounds so similar to like what patreon is today um but you were doing it kind of an ad hoc way on your own yeah yeah it's like more like a one-time donations and like it would be like a one-time thing and like uh the i i think the piece missing there was like although they would donate right like they wouldn't really us uh, so it's like the donators wouldn't really receive the benefits mm -hmm. like or like they would but like it would be basically for the good of the like readers mm -hmm. and they like uh part of that was really good but then the other part meant like there were some people that like uh, wanted to donate but then they're like but i also want something for myself like mm -hmm. something special and like uh i think that's actually what uh brought on the like discovery of like hey like why don't we start a patreon where we start to like give only the donors uh extra mm. extra chapters because i think uh a couple people had like talked to us and then like hey i want like some extra perks if i do this or that mm -hmm. so you did end up starting an actual patreon yeah yeah so i think um at some point we, we were probably like like the community as a whole we were, we were probably one of the bigger blobs mm -hmm. on patreon i think uh between like the whole I guess like transition-based community, we're probably pulling down 250 to about 300, maybe even 400K a month. Wow, just from Patreon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was quite a bit. At what point did you decide to start bringing on other translators? And what was that transition like? Yeah, so I think um, very early on, so I guess like when I started translating, I always, I guess like received these like, hey, like uh, I'm, happy to help. I, I know English. I want to be a editor or I, or I know a bit, bit of Chinese. I want to try to be a translator. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think given that like my original like purpose, so I guess like starting gravity was so that I would personally translate and like personally get better at English, mm -hmm. which by the way I, I did, I think I got like a 790 on the SAT writing portion, which is now discontinued. But it was like, a, I think a jump from 600 to about 790. So I was pretty happy about that. Yeah, um, that was a great result. 
<laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, and then, so when I first thought about, hey, like what could be the next step here? Um, I think this was like slightly after donations. Mm-hmm. I thought, hey, like maybe we can start to bring on other people to do translating. I would be the like QC, uh, quality checker. And then that way we can in- increase our throughput. And uh, the process started pretty organically where I was responding back to people who, who expressed interest. Mm-hmm. And I told them, hey, like, uh, yeah, like, why don't you start doing this chapter and then I'll read over it. Uh, if it looks good, we'll publish it together. And uh, I think the process has come a long way since then where we have like a, or like at least at, at the time, uh, when I left, we had a like dedicated system of translators. They would maintain mm-hmm. a glossary. There'd be like a separate system of editors uh, who had like a main novel and a sub novel where like their main novel was something that they would be like on call for almost. And it just became a very like tight knit system. Whereas at the very start, it was basically just me telling this guy, Hey, do this chapter. I'll look over it. If it looks good, we'll publish. And that was it. Were there ever issues around like IP with the novels that you were translating? Yeah. So I think that was also like a part of why I ultimately sold. So I think at the very start, uh, nobody knew like how big this could be or also like, uh, where this could lead to. Mm -hmm. And so back in the day, like the authors mostly had, like they retained the IP with regards to translations. And so we could just like, talk to the author be like, Hey, I want to do this. And be like, yeah, there's no problem problem on my end. Mm -hmm. Um, but later on as like the industry, I guess, like of translations grew as well as the fact that, uh, web publishing in China itself grew as well. Mm -hmm. I guess publishers started to have like more and more strict, uh, I guess, like rules and like, uh, thoughts around IP. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, this was like roughly the summer, my freshman year where I was thinking, Hey, uh, maybe like spring when I started like really engaging a lot with the publishers. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I had like a, a, a epiphany at some point where I was like, Hey, so we can really only license from one company if we want to make it big. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was because like, if we had, let's say license from this first company, uh, the chances of us licensing from this like different company would be so much worse, uh, to the point where, uh, it became the, like, like the, these Chinese publishing companies actually like started to create their own clones of like what mm. we were doing. And like, it didn't really make sense for them to give us licenses if they want, if they were doing something themselves, or even if they had, I guess, like a, uh, partner in the U S already Mm. and so uh that really got me thinking about hey like what kind of future do i envision for myself as well as gravity as well as uh what do i want to do let's say like two three years from now Mm -hmm. if not longer and the answer to that was i really don't want to be somebody who is i guess like spending a lot of time trying to figure out like the dollars and cents of like how to like license each novel Mm -hmm. And so at that point, like there were really like two or three possible path, 
path in front of me. If I wanted to keep going with gravity, I think we would have had to like made a major pivot and uh, moved on towards original novels, which at the time seemed like a really risky bet. And mm-hmm. honestly, like thinking back now, it might have been the right decision, but at the time it was really murky about like whether or not this would be the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, the other path would be to like basically stay independent and just hope that these like licenses would come through whenever we needed them and so like this wouldn't be like very limiting to our growth and then uh, i guess like the final path was to either take investment or be bought on entirely and so i chose like that final path where i was like bought out by the biggest publisher in china Mm -hmm. which meant that basically we had free reign over or like we had i guess overall like unlimited access to like the novels and then we could grow from there why was it that having licensed with one publisher would have made it harder to license with other publishers? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the biggest pieces was that once we started getting the licenses, um, other companies would then like ask us like, hey, like, do you have licenses for these books? And we would be like either yes or like we're still in the middle of like talking through them. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, when I guess like uh, we got these like licenses from this uh, company called Zhonghong, um, afterwards like it made our talks with this other company called Something um, K mm-hmm. much harder. And I think the thesis behind that was like, hey, like these people seem like they want to like branch more in terms of Zhonghong, and like it doesn't make sense for us to give them these licenses at the moment if that can be like say like used against us right so like uh if we like look at these novels individually uh they have like their own base of community and whatnot Mm -hmm. but the thing was that like while the translation was still ongoing uh this i guess a group of group of readers would still stay intact for the moment like this novel finished or like say like this novel stopped translating this group of readers would start to slowly dwindle. Mm-hmm. And so for these like publishing companies, if they wanted to, I guess, like maintain, uh, I guess, like their edge or like lead, it really made a lot of sense for them to, I guess, even like withhold the licenses and then give it to a partner which they controlled or uh, held and then have them do the translations, basically taking over all of the audience that uh the previous mm. translator had built oh, um, sounds like they were kind yeah, of I, worried I about the novels being on the same platform like competing for eyeballs there like, i think it was yeah like a definitely a big part of that but mm. i think the bigger part was like they just wanted to have their own like us-based partner mm. where like they could uh, i guess like extract all the profits there gotcha so yeah. after the initial traction, did it just continue to grow organically or were there moves you made in order to, to help it grow faster? Yeah, so I think the part that I'm the most proud of is, uh, I guess, like how we grew. Uh, we didn't really spend anything on ads. Uh, we had a lot of referral-based and word-of-mouth-based traffic. Mm-hmm. But the biggest one was probably just like the acquisition of new novels. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the... I guess like the overall translation community was quite small. Uh, And so 
what happened was like each translator would have his or her, her own book. Mm. And so I guess like the point that I guess like made gravity from a, I guess like hobby to a real business was when uh, A, I realized like, hey, we can also bring on other translators. Mm -hmm. And then B, I realized that uh, when we brought on other translators, we could also bring on their books. Mm -hmm. And so that really, I guess, like changed the mindset around how can we get like get more throughput to how can we get more audience. And so basically we worked with, with a lot of like smaller translators to join our platform because uh, on our platform, they could A, access more readers, B, also, I guess, like get ad revenue, which uh, was quite hard to set up on your own with this smaller audience and whatnot. And so uh, I think at, at the end, it was like a win-win situation, mm -hmm. but at the very start, like it was quite muddy and like how we should move forward and grow. So you're kind of paying royal tease out to the the translators and i guess to the publishers as well exactly yeah and then but so i'm thinking probably when you first started translating you had no idea about partnering with publishers and things at what point did it transition from just kind of basically pirating novels and putting them online to like mm -hmm. official partnerships and was that like a smooth transition or did they come at you like with fangs bared and you had to calm them down or what, what was that conversation like? Yeah. So I think the start of that was, uh, happened probably about a year after I started it. Um, so I think this was probably like start of 2016 where we were thinking like, Hey, like, so now we're making what, like, uh, I think the time of time was me like 10, 15 K a month in terms of like overall, revenue across donations, across ads, and also uh, across all the different different novels. Mm -hmm. And seeing that we thought, hey, like this is actually quite a bit of money. So like we should really think about like, hey, like should we re reach out to the authors? Should we reach out to the publishers? I think that that was an ongoing theme for a really long time uh, where it was kind of like a catch 22 mm -hmm. where uh, I guess like the more we reached out to the publishers and like the more we guess like engaged with them, the more likely that they were actually not going to give us the licenses because then like if they saw the potential, they would just do it themselves. Mm. And so I think that was a really weird dynamic there. Although I think uh, we started reaching out to the authors quite early in fact. Um, and like overall, they were really supportive overall since like we were making peanuts and uh, they got a bigger audience, which is always what they would want. Um, and so I guess like the process of licensing, I think some publishers were definitely more willing to work with us than others. Um, and like, I'll go, I'll go back to the example of Zhonghong, I think they were our, I guess, like first partners really. And like, they were probably the most willing to give us the um, li licenses because at the time they had no plans to like go international. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I guess, uh, so like this is my parent company. Uh, they actually wanted to go like international and break into the English reading audience. And so they were definitely a lot more, I guess, cagey when they thought about licensing their own novels to a third party. Mm. 
Um, and how was the decision to like drop out of college and and commit to Gravity full time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I guess like I've probably been a really bad student since I started Gravity, mm. um, and I think a large part of that was just because like I realized hey like there's something bigger and better than grades up there, mm. and one of the uh, like uh, first things that I thought, thought about like once I, once I sold the company was okay I still have three more years of college like how am I, how am I going to get get through this and so uh right after selling it uh i actually stayed a year in college uh, while running gravity full-time and like working with the i guess my chinese counterparts and so uh every summer every winter i would fly back to china and like stay there for maybe like a month two months and just work there and uh so the part that i guess like uh made me realize that this wasn't sustainable was i think at the end of my sophomore year where i realized hey like i'm constantly really tired constantly feeling like really sh shitty mm -hmm. and uh this was probably probably because like i was working like a lot um so like i think starting from probably like high school when i started gravity i was probably working maybe like like doing doing school and then putting anywhere from 20 to 40 to even like 45 hours a week on gravity uh and it's so like this meant like my weekends were basically just like translating talking to people mm. editing whatnot and it was really a lot less about i guess like doing things that you would do in college such as like joining clubs or otherwise uh, and so uh at the end of sophomore year i realized hey, like something needed to change and the easiest change for me was to simply say hey like i'm gonna stop taking classes next semester i'm gonna try this thing full time and let's see where it goes and so uh i guess like soon afterwards i realized hey like uh maybe this isn't the lifestyle that i want i want to see like what else is out there for me mm -hmm. and so uh roughly a semester after i dropped out i realized hey like let me get back in and so this was roughly around the same time that I basically left gravity. So I left gravity, rejoined school, and then uh, that brings me here. Uh, well, not here, but like that was, I guess, like the whole like thought process there. How did the acquisition come to be? Who reached out to who, and, and what was that whole process like? Yeah. So uh, because of licensing, I had already been in talks with all like all of the major publishing companies in China. Mm -hmm. So uh, Zhang Yue, Samsung K, Zhonghang, Jidian, uh, and also a couple of, of like smaller niche ones as well. Mm -hmm. And so really when it like, when the thought of investment came to my mind, uh, like I approached it with like the other, I guess like parties that I was working with. And uh, so at the end we realized like, hey, like, uh, there could be something there and so i think it was more of a conversation between both of us since, since we had already a dialogue mm -hmm. and we just i guess like naturally transitioned it towards hey you want to license from us well uh, do you think we could take like a stake in your company and 
from there it went to hey like should we just buy a company all out mm. how long was that conversation from like hey let's license to let's invest to let's buy you to sold good question probably three to four months um it's been a while since like so i don't remember the exact time frame mm-hmm. but i think the uh starting point when like things got to be serious was probably around march and then the time was so that was roughly june maybe like the start of july mm-hmm. are you allowed to say how much that sale was for yeah yeah so i mean uh so roughly all in i got about two million dollars nice for at that by that point, it had been three years, I guess, or two years. Yeah, yeah, about about three years. Yeah, and started in high school. Three years later, sold for two million dollars. Pretty crazy. Not a lot of um, people have that experience, especially like at any point in their life, especially that young. Um, like, what a way to kind of ignite the beginning of your career, I guess. <laughs> Thanks. After yeah. so, after you sold, um, what was it like working mm-hmm. with them? as like a subsidiary what was that relationship like um i think one of the things that like i think both is a good and bad thing was because of how young i was um i didn't really think of it as a subsidiary and i think most of the team members of the parent company also didn't think of that relationship either and so it was more like a mentor and tea thing Mm -hmm. where i would talk with them get advice from them, learn their stories about when they were trying to expand the Chinese market, and then try to apply those uh, tactics to the US market. And mm-hmm. so I think, uh, I think overall, like that time period, uh, we had probably the most fun and also I guess like the most, uh, I guess like disappointments in a sense because a lot of the things that like we like they did in china uh just simply didn't translate so what the u.s market wanted or even expected do you have an example of that and so uh, huh do you have an example of like something that worked well in the chinese publishing market but just like didn't in the in the u.s market yeah so uh i think uh the probably the most prominent example is like a paywall um and so Basically, like our readers had been expecting things for free and uh, didn't really want, I guess, like pay to read. Mm-hmm. Whereas in China, like this was the default. Although I guess like now there is like a shifting tide towards going back to free and then like seeing where else you can draw the money from, which mm-hmm. is mainly based off of IP. Uh, so like selling the movie rights, selling the like I guess like TV rights, whatnot, um, and so. At the time, right, like uh, the thought process was, this has worked so well in China. This has like really built a, a whole economy of writers in China. Hopefully, and like I think it will work in the U.S. And uh, the result actually was more that like people were really against it, and although it's still being done today in the U.S., I think the results are probably like a much more of a mixed bag than like one would hope. Mm. I feel like that came a lot from the transition to free to paid because like you look at Kindle, everything is paywalled, right? You have to buy the book in the first place. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe because it comes in a handheld form factor, it feels more like buying a book. But mm -hmm. that seems. Yeah, I think Go ahead. the other part of this was like more like pirating and whatnot. And so, like in China, right? Like, uh, like if you hosted a site that was pirating content, like this was like punishable by law. Mm. Whereas I think uh, more internationally. Uh, this became quite quite uh, quite quite common, right? So, like, if if you think about manga, right, like, uh, pretty much like almost every single manga uh, site that you would read from is like to some degree a pirator or aggregator. They don't translate their content themselves. They actually just like scrape it from the individual, I guess, like content publishers. And so, I think in the U.S., like there's much more of a feeling of like hey like how do you monetize when it's really hard to get people to pay and also there are like these like alternatives that they could use to not pay was the traffic mostly us or was it more spread out than that it was pretty spread out, but like probably like anywhere from sixty to eighty percent was U.S. based. Mm. Um, so we had a lot of Canadian readers, and we also had a lot of Indonesian readers as well. Mm. You would think like the whole English speaking world potentially would be um, your readers. Did you ever yeah, do yeah. translation the other direction, like English to Chinese or other languages? Yeah. So uh, going back to the point about like readers, uh, I think the main reason why was because most of the translators were based in the US and so that meant that like the English that we use uh, might be like a little bit different than people in like Australia or like Britain and the other part of this was like we actually saw like a really big market in the East Asian uh, countries like mm -hmm. Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam and I think that's where the parent company is currently focused on um, but I think the reason why they were able to find a lot of success there was just simply because of the fact that like the content was so similar to what they had been been exposed to previously. And so, uh, yeah, so I think uh, those two were probably why like the US was the biggest and like also since I was based in the US, it like also made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, and with regards to your other question, which was translating from English to Chinese, we actually did try that a little bit, not too much, um, but we did try that with, with a couple of our original novels. And I think the results were quite disappointing um, just because like there's already so much content out there in China itself with regards to like the like three or four major publishers. It's already like a full-blown economy. People have been doing this as you're living for a long time. And so uh, I don't think our ecosystem was, I guess, like established enough to produce the right, right kind of content to succeed in that sort of environment. Makes sense. Um, Mukhtar in the live chat was wondering if you could circle yeah. back a bit on growth and how you got all of that traffic, Just particularly like what channels yeah. you used. Yeah, so I think, um, Ultimately, it was the product that like led to most of our growth. So uh, going back to like what 
Gravity did. We basically translated these like novels, but like these weren't like your traditional novels that only have like maybe like 20 to 30 chapters and like 10,000 words, or sorry, uh, 100,000 words. Like these were novels that had maybe 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 chapters even, mm -hmm. each chapter with about 2,000 words. And so now you have what, like anywhere from like two to six million words per novel. And so when that happens, you're like, say like, uh, if the hook was good enough, um, it's like probably like roughly a hundred, hundred chapters in, like you would be pretty drawn to the story. And you still had like maybe, let's say like 1900 chapters left. And so like you would keep coming back simply because the story wasn't done yet. Mm. Um, it's like most, I guess, like stories um, that we, that, that we read in the book format, like they would be done by like our chapter 50, but like we were what, like roughly 20 X bigger. Mm. Um, so I think that was the first and probably the biggest piece. Like once a user like read path on like chapter 25, they would pretty much be hooked and like they just wouldn't churn. It'd be like really small, small amounts of churn. And so that meant that like, as we grew, like the only thing that we needed to maintain was a the quality of our chapters or like our translations, and also be the quantity at which we outputted. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, I think, the fir first piece. And then the second piece was just like I think we also hit upon a uh, really important for lack of a better word need where people would want to maybe like spend like the next like five ten minutes in some sort of like quick thing that would make them happy or like enjoy themselves so like TikTok or like youtube but like we were the written version of that right like you could jump in read a chapter and then be done and then not to really think about it again until you did your next chapter. And so uh, that meant that like for people who just joined us, or, like found us online, like they could maybe read two or three chapters, then uh, boom, they, I guess like get a little bit more hooked and then they just like read, read, and then keep on reading. And then slowly they would get more and more hooked until they became like a very committed user or like reader to us. Um, and then the third part was, simply that there wasn't any content like this elsewhere at the moment. Um, so I think when we look at fiction, I think there is this like very, uh, very clear gap between what I would call young adult, which is probably targeted more towards the early teens mm -hmm. and then like uh, fiction in the sense of like, I don't know, let's say like uh, something more adult based. So like that would be like anywhere from like 30 onwards where it's a little bit more mature, a little bit more like thought-provoking. Thought and so I think what we did was we had this niche between, I think like roughly 15 to 25, where there just wasn't the right type, right, type, right type of concept for them. And we filled that niche where it was still like uh, these like more like fantasy superhero stories, but then they also had a little bit of element of deeper society as well uh so like one thing i can think of is like uh you had i guess like these like 
tropes where like the the main character would be looked down upon and it became very real where it's like uh they got looked down upon because of wealth because of i guess like uh race even and so like that's like it was a bit more mature than like this like oh like hey this hero went on this journey to become great it, it became a little bit more deep yeah so you'd hook people um, and they would stay and you had really high yeah. retention i'm um, get was there any like mm-hmm. seo benefit to having that many just like words on your website yeah i think they're definitely was so uh like for a very long time we were basically putting like chapters on my plain html like barely any css or javascript so and like we certainly didn't do any tags or whatnot and so like it was basically just like a bunch of words on a page that linked to other pages with a lot with a lot of words on them Mm -hmm. and so i think uh that helped us uh, i guess like in the sense of like uh we were very clean and like minimalistic um but in terms of like seo like we really never prioritized that or even like dug very heavily into that until much later and like even when we did it was kind of a like back burner focus and i think that, that that's something that's i think a little bit different than like most other companies or uh, most other places and i think the main reason for that was just because of the fact that we had such a big audience already and like word of mouth was such a big channel mm-hmm. and so our main gro- growth levers were simply to how can we uh i guess encourage our current readers to share what they're reading with their friends and uh, i think that was very drastically different than like oh like let's optimize our seo so someone searching can like find us what did you do to encourage sharing yeah so i think uh we did a lot of different things uh whether it's like uh bringing on new novels uh i guess like doing events and whatnot i think at the end of the day there was just really these two cornerstone metrics quality and quantity where you just had the best novel best translations most gripping story um that was translated well so like you know like errors in grammar punctuation um stuff like that and then uh in terms of quantity it was just like how many chapters of this one novel could you produce right um so i think this meant that like throughput was also dependent on uh, each novel where if you had let's say 10 novels and you did one chapter a week on each of them it would have much less of an impact than one novel with 10 chapters out um so yeah once you're at tencent how did they incentivize you to to keep working as many hours as you did were you still participating in the upside of gravity in some way or was it like a lockup period yeah yeah so uh there was both the earnout and also i uh kept a percentage of gravity itself mm. and then there were some like other bonuses involved um i think the main reason why i worked still so hard for so long 
was simply because I really enjoyed doing what I did. Um, I I really like enjoyed reading like since, since I was a kid, and I really did enjoy like these novels that we were translating. So like uh, I think in my free time, right, like uh, it's like take a break from gravity. I basically just go on to like my parent company's website and just read more. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it was probably a mixture of like passion and just like the incentive structure that like uh, made me like work as hard as I did past the acquisition. Um, so when your earnout ended, is that when you decided to leave or what was the motivation for ultimately leaving after a couple of years? Yeah, so I think uh, it was a bit of both. Um, definitely when my earnout ended, it was like a sense of, I don't know, relief. Mm. Although it did end in at the end of 2017 and left at the start of 2019. Um, I think the other part was uh, thinking that I wanted to do something other than publishing for the rest of my life. And I think that, that that was also like why I sold the company. It was like, hey, like I don't want to be a, like uh, working in this like sort of very niche publishing for like the next 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I came to that realization, like that's why I like ultimately decided, hey, like I'm gonna sell instead of take, take investment or otherwise. Um, and so like, I think, starting from the moment that I sold, I knew I wanted to like leave at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the other piece here was, was thinking about, Hey, like, uh, I was what, like, I was 18 when I sold it and I was 20 when I, yeah. So I was 20 when I decided to leave. Um, and like, at that point I was like, Hey, like, so I'm, I'm a 20 year old with no college degree. I, did sell my company, but like, what's next for me? Right? Like, I I still have like, well, like maybe 40, 60 years of my life left. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I thought of it like that, it, it made the decision quite clear. Like, hey, I should go back to school. I should think about like what I want to do next. What I'm passionate about next. And so I think uh, that's what ultimately made me leave. Mm. Um, I guess one last question about. Uh, Gravity Tales from the chat. Ahmed says, you're clearly very passionate about Gravity Tales. What was it about it that made you feel it had really good business um, foundations versus anything else? And I'd also be curious now, as an older, wiser Richard, maybe in hindsight, um, what your takeaways are from, from building Gravity Tales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, to answer... Ahmed's question. Um, the wait, can can you repeat the yeah. first part again? So he says, um, "What is what was it about Gravity Tales at the time that made mm, you feel yeah, like it had this yeah. business potential?" Yeah. So um, honestly, I don't know if I could tell you. Um, if there was like this, like one specific thing, I think the first part in a long series of events was when I saw my first donation dollars come in Mm -hmm. and I 
remember like i think i like opened it up on like or, like i like set up my like paypal account i think under my dad's name because i wasn't 18 yet mm. at the time uh, and then like i think i like i think th this was back when i was still on swim team um and i was swam all through high school and so i woke up really early each day like around 4 a.m 5 a.m and i remember setting it up at like probably 6 p.m and then waking up at 4 a.m the next day and like the moment i looked at my phone i was like you have 20 bucks in donations you have 40 bucks in donations you have like 100 bucks in donations and i was like what just happened here <laughs> right i think like that moment was really magical mm -hmm. where the first day i set it up i got like that much money and like that was holy shit to me um and i think the next step that like made me think like hey like this could be a business was when i realized hey, like cpm ads paid out at about like anywhere from like 0.5 to one dollar per thousand impressions mm -hmm. if, if not more i mean like video ads on like youtube maybe pay around like eight to eight to ten dollars but for like a static banner-based ad like my website like it would pay, pay maybe like the upward max was like probably one dollar or so and so like i saw hey like i have roughly half a million of page views a day if i had let's say one dollar per thousand page views that means that i could be making anywhere from like 500 to like 600 a day multiply that by 30 that gets me to what like around 15,000. Uh, multiply that by 12 and now you're at what like Close to uh, 180k yeah and that was when i was like holy shit like that's quite a bit of money yeah. right there um and so i think that was the second point but i think what ultimately i guess like made me successful or like i guess uh made me fare better than the others uh was just the fact that like i was somebody who given a passion could just keep working at it and like really not feel that tired for a very long time mm -hmm. and so like back when i started like there were probably like roughly 10 to 12 different translators um and like as we grew right like there became more um translators overall but when i look back and i like think about like i guess like all the translators that were like still uh working for like two years or more mm -hmm. Like the number is like probably like less like around five or six like back around the time i left right and so i think that was the other piece where you just kept on working on things and you just kept on trying things right it's like i, I didn't make my first dollar until like probably three four months after i had been like working at this like two hours a day and like not spending it in, in any weekends for myself um, and so i think that was the other part where it was just like, this is something that I'm passionate about. This is something that I enjoy. And this can be something like that makes me money. And so I think that like the intersection of the two really helped me, I guess, like grow to like where it was when I sold it. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the other piece as like an older wiser richard i think there is definitely like probably like a binder full of like things that i could have done differently probably more even mm -hmm. like i 
definitely had like some very big uh, failures, whether it was with contracts or whatnot. Um, but I think at the end of the day, nobody starts off at like I'd say one one hundred percent. And so I think when I look back at like what my mistakes are, really they help reflect I guess like what I should not be doing in the future. And so I think uh, if I had to go back in time and do it again, as like me who has had all, all this knowledge, I probably would have not done any of what I did. But like at least I, I would say like sixty to like seventy percent of the things that I did, I would do much much differently. But I think that yeah, it's just like it's it's water water under the bridge. It's just unavoidable what did your um, parents think about all this did they know what you were up to yeah so i actually kept it under wraps for a really long time because i just didn't think that like anybody would want to know about this like touch this Mm -hmm. um it was more more like my guilty pleasure for lack of a better word um and so i think i told my parents when i started making money which was the donations and they were, I think, on the edge of being supportive because, uh, so I really started becoming a bad student when I started doing gravity, uh, where grades matter a lot less to me. And so I think that definitely did hurt my college prospects mm-hmm. where, uh, like, I think my second semester junior year, it was like, like a 3.0 GPA, which is still not bad, but like compared to what I had before, like my GPA basically went from like this mm-hmm. and tanked. And so um, so I think that was like a big piece about, I guess, like how they felt about uh, what I was doing. They saw my grades and they were like, holy shit. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I don't think like either of them were really supportive in the sense like, hey, like uh, Richard, you should follow your dreams but like they also never really stopped me from like doing what i was doing Mm -hmm. they were just like hey like this is your time you get to get to decide how you do it as long as like your grades don't like take a further notice that although they did and like they still like gave me more leeway each time Mm -hmm. until the end of high school where they were just like okay well it's too late now Mm -hmm. um but but yeah, like I think uh, they gave me a lot of room to just explore what I wanted to do and just like try different things, which I'm like really grateful for. And like once it got sold, or like I guess like starting from like I guess like when I was starting to enter in, in like the talks, like they became a lot more supportive in the sense that they like helped me find like lawyers and whatnot. And so like I think th- throughout my whole process, they've definitely been on like the much more positive side um although i think at the very start they were quite against it just mm-hmm. given the fact that like my grades were just taking a nosedive um what was their reaction like when you first revealed it did they realize how many people were using your site i i honestly don't remember when i like the exact reactions when i told them i think mm-hmm. the i think the main thing was when i had to set up a bank account 
and like this is something that I remember because it was a really really big castle trying to set that up as somebody who was underage mm -hmm. and so I think it was like a joint account under my dad and my mom's name um and they were like why are you setting this account up again and like I told them and I was like hey like look at my paypal i have this much money in it <laughs> and they were like okay you know what yeah 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 it makes a lot, a lot more sense now um and yeah i think that's honestly like the most vivid memory that i have of that experience um honestly i just don't remember what what happened when when i first told them about it. i think they're just like oh cool and then they moved on did that like, did your age present any other challenges as far as like signing contracts with other people and things of that nature? Yeah, I think um, my age definitely provided like a really big detriment, whether it was back when I was doing the contracts with like other translators, mm -hmm. convincing them to join me and whatnot. Um, but I think the other part of like being really young was like I just had so much more time and like I had so much more focus. And so like I, I could do these things like other people would have quit quit a long time ago or like stop trying as hard. Um, I think that like from the outside world looking in, it was definitely a huge detriment, but from my own perspective, I think it was actually a really great thing. So like if I, like if you told me like today, like, Hey, you're going to have to translate this one book that has like 10 million Chinese characters and you're going to do it for three months, without pay i'd be like what the fuck mm. but um at the time it was just like oh hey like i mean i'm not gonna be making money with money with my time either mm -hmm. so like why not just try to do this and see where it goes um ahmed has a good follow-up question here which is like say you were to go back in time and start over what would you do differently or what would you have done differently <laughs> yeah um i think i asset of myself a lot, especially the days after I left Gravity, thinking about like, hey, like, what could I have done differently? What what could I have done better? And I think the honest answer was, if there was one event that like really changed things, was that I think I should have dropped out of school the moment I started Gravity, mm -hmm. and actually taken like a full time position somewhere else. So like whether it was like being, I don't know, like a clerk or like, uh, I don't know, a uh, intern at, at some startup. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I guess like kept me back was just like the lack of experience and just the lack of understanding of how the world really functioned in like a non-school environment. Mm. And so I think uh, that would probably be the biggest thing that I would change like if I could somehow like whisper into like my ear back in the day um but if i were to go go back to, like today and like redo everything um honestly there are like so many different things that i would do differently but i think above all else i think i would have been a lot more aggressive so i didn't really bring on my uh other translators until like i think five six months mm. after i started uh, i didn't really bring on other novels until what, like a year after i started 
I didn't really think that this would be a business until like a year and a half or even two years after I started. So like, like the, the, I guess like deltas and all this time was like basically a lot of missed and lost opportunity. And I think that if I could go back again, I'd just like try to make things as fast as possible and like do things a lot better. I feel like that would have been a, a much harder sell to your parents. I mean, drop out of high school and <laughs> yeah. really focus on this. For sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think um, like even to this day, right? Like my parents really wanted me to go to an Ivy League. And uh, yeah, like I, I, I think at least a part of like why I didn't make the cut was because of gravity and like how much time that was sucking up and like at the time like it kind of didn't really make sense after my SATs because it was like what like making like 500 bucks like a month maybe a thousand and like it just it just wasn't a big thing it wasn't very impactful and like mm -hmm. at the time you couldn't really predict that it would grow to become as big as it did and so when you look at like the present value like it just didn't make sense that's uh, kind of an indictment of the like Ivy League administ um, administration, like <laughs> uh, admission system, Maybe, right? Yeah. If you if you if yeah. a if a kid can build this like basically in his bedroom, like maybe the GPA isn't the most important factor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th I think at the time when when I was applying, like gravity also wasn't this like huge thing either. Mm. So it was like it was like a middling achievement if even that mm. and i think just the fact that i could like keep on pushing forward keep on persevering after all of this i think that's ultimately what made it successful i guess when it comes time to make your parents happy there's always grad school right <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly um let's go forward in time a little bit i guess you you've leave, left gravity you've gone back to school now scale mm -hmm. ai comes knocking and you drop out again. Yeah. So how did that um, happen? And why did why yeah, did so, you make the jump? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so scale was really interesting because I think it was ultimately just like a big mix up that like I ended up going there. Um, so the first part was like I actually applied for this like internship role of like uh, under the name technical product manager mm -hmm. so like i've i've always been someone like who's a bit more technical but also like some somebody who also also i guess like does a lot of like business business experience so i didn't really want to become like a software engineer mm -hmm. um so in between the time that i applied and i got my i guess like uh response that role actually got taken down and everybody in that role actually got like i guess like transition to this, I guess, like a new role called a product operations manager. Can you just really so, quickly explain uh, what Scale AI is for, for people that don't know? Professor yeah, context? yeah. So basically like uh, Scale AI labels data. And so uh, if you think about machine learning, you have a lot of like different attributes and then you have like a end label. And so uh, what Scale does is like it guarantees like 99.5% accuracy on the labels through using human in a loop. And so that means like somebody like would, I guess like uh, label, hey, like this part of an image is a cat, this part of an image is a bush, this part of an image is a tree and whatnot. Um, and so like that would be how you like 
how you could guarantee this accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much like a, in a nutshell what Scale does, although they focus a lot more on LiDAR-based data, which is uh, mainly used for self-driving cars, as well as like other interesting applications. How, um, how big were they at the time yeah. when you were doing this um, sort of internship? Yeah, so we had, or they had just raised their Series B, yeah, and valued at roughly a hundred million. Um, and soon after I joined, they raised their Series C, and I think they're also likely raising their Series D at this point. Cool. Valuation delta is roughly thirty x. So you join, they delete your role, and you're into this new thing. What happened next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, between when I applied and when I joined, basically, I think they thought that I was applying to be there full time when I really wanted just like a three month Mm. (laughs) internship. And so uh, basically, they told me, hey, like your offer will stand unchanged. Like if you want to become an intern, you can just leave after three months and like that'll be it. And so so I guess I really joined Scale as a full-time employee, even though I was thinking that I would only stay there for about three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think uh, Scale was really interesting in that like, it was a very, very fast-growing startup. Uh, like, we were basically like in hyper-growth everywhere you saw like it was more a bandwidth problem than a actual like, hey, like we need to find more customers like do something else problem. It was just simply like there were so many problems that we just didn't have enough time to solve them. And like, mm-hmm. if we did, then we could be growing even faster, um, which would, I guess, also lead to more problems, which I mean, it's like catch 22 there. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so as a product ops manager, uh, basically like I was pr- part of this new team called supply ops, which basically handled everything supply related. So like that would be all of our human labelers. And uh, more specifically, I worked in the uh, sales part of that team. So basically I worked with a lot of like salespeople. I worked a lot with the customer's success slash like customer operations people Mm -hmm. to just like get these deals done, such as like if they wanted to like first sign a contract with us, they would want to, I guess, like have a POC proof of concept or just like some data that we label that shows them, hey, like we have this level of quality and precision. And so uh, that was, I think, the uh, main piece. I also worked a lot with uh, like the existing, I guess, like uh, ramps, which, which were, I guess, like these ex- existing customers and at some point they had some sort of quality issue or some other issue and like I worked to like solve those fires. Um, yeah, so I think that explains my role and like my time at like scale in, in a quick nutshell. Yeah. How long did you end up staying there? Yeah, so I ended up staying about seven months, eight months almost. Um, and yeah, so I think uh, one of the things at scale was Everybody was very ambitious and you got very, I guess, like motivated 
in that environment to like try to do something new. And mm-hmm. I think that um, when I first joined Scale, I thought, hey, like I really just want to come here to learn about like AI and ML, and then go go back to school, and then uh, see where see where my life takes me from there. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I was like two three months in, at Scale, like my thoughts were, hey, I want to do a new company now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to go back to school ever again. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, so I got caught up in that, like, it's like fever. And then, uh, like when I left scale, I thought, Hey, like, uh, let me try doing something new. Mm-hmm. So why did you end up leaving after seven months after kind of drinking the Kool-Aid after three months? Yeah, I think the main thing was just like, Hey, I wanted to do something new, something different, mm-hmm. something where I could be building something from the ground up. Is that when? Yeah, is that what brings us to shine yeah. with, or was there some other things in between there? There was a cu- cu- couple of things in between. Like I thought, hey, like edtech was going to be the next wave. Uh, I had also gone back to China very recently, so I actually gone back in January, back when COVID was barely beginning, and mm. actually got in sick in China. Although that was for I think food poisoning. Mm. Um, not a very pleasant pleasant experience and like it almost like jeopardized me coming back here because like like they were like hey what if he has covid (laughs) so uh thankfully i was and hopefully still am covid free um and then i came back and i guess that was a point where i was like hey like uh let me try doing something new and so like uh that was first like I think my first thought was like, hey, I want to do something education related because that was always something that I had in the back of my mind. And then also at scale, I, I worked a little bit on the, I guess, like incentive problem where how could you educate people to like do well, but then also like incentivize them to want to be educated. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, hey, like uh, I can use this experience, and like maybe I can start to think about like, hey, like what sort of thing that I want to do, I guess, like in terms of the ed tech space. Um, yeah, and then that that uh, that month, I guess, like for the month of February, I called up a lot, a, a lot of different people. I like read, read a lot of different books, and the end. And the answer for me was, holy shit, this does not sound like a space that I want to be in. <laughs> um, and I think like a lot has changed with COVID. And like, I think today when we look at it, like now, it seems like it's like a much nicer space in terms of like, there's a lot less bureaucracy and a lot more, I guess, like blue ocean where mm. like companies can sell much more easily into. Whereas, like, at the time when I first, like, thought about it and I heard about, I guess, like, how long it takes to, like, really sell to these universities or high schools, it was, like, holy shit. And then the other part was, like, you weren't really judged on, like, your performance. You were really judged on, like, the features that that you had. So, like, Mm. even if you had, like, it's, like, the world's best video video conferencing, like, Zoom, Mm -hmm. um, like previous to COVID, like Zoom didn't really sell that well to like teachers because they always had this like random 
application somewhere that had this one feature that like basically that was your whole product. And because it had that one feature, they were like, yeah, we're good on this, even though they really weren't. Um, and I think that that was the other piece there, which I guess like really made me think about like, hey, maybe we shouldn't, or like maybe I shouldn't pursue this. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us to like Shen With, where, uh, yeah, like I worked on for like the past like eight months or so. So what is, what is Shine With? Yeah, so Shine With, I guess uh, the big and more mighty description is like we're basically reinventing the infrastructure in which creators get their raw materials. So that might be like gemstones, it might also be like steel or silver or gold and whatnot. Um, although we really just focused mainly on gemstones and in particular turquoise. So I think a lot of people are probably thinking that's like a pretty big departure from everything you've <laughs> done before, publishing, technology. Um, how do you get involved with, with Shine With? Yeah, so I think, uh, so it was mainly my co-founder who I guess like knew a lot about turquoise and who has like had this like very deep expertise there. Um, and I actually had met her in SF and I realized hey, like this is a very nice and niche opportunity. Although I think at the time I was not skill and I wasn't really thinking about, hey, like uh, maybe like I could pursue this. And so uh, I think at the end of like February, like I was re- really when I was thinking about like, hey, like uh, COVID starting to come here. What's like something that's like very in-person heavy and something that's probably going to be changing rel- relatively soon. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, hey, like maybe this could be trade shows because those are like very heavily in-person and also like very much like something that probably was, was not going to be happening with COVID happening. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for trade shows, I think there's a lot of different varieties. Um, the most famous one, I think, uh, that we, we can all think of is like the gun trade shows. Although I think as a proportion of overall trade show market, they're quite small. Um, and so I think one of the things was like raw materials where it was like gemstones and when I'm like, I never knew that like how hard it would be to, I guess, like get raw materials if you were, I guess, like someone who sold on Etsy or whatnot and like didn't have like a huge mm-hmm. amount of traffic. It, it was basically, you would fly to these trade shows once a year, buy basically all of your stones for the whole year. Mm. and then fly back and hope they didn't crack or like break afterwards mm. <laughs> because there really was no refund or re- return policy. And so, uh, so yeah, so like that's what me and my co-founder, I guess, like set out to change. Uh, basically it was kind of like e-commerce in a box where we would talk with the suppliers, they would consign their stones to us and then we would sell it out at like a huge markup. So like uh, if say the stones were consigned to us at like roughly $2 a carat, we'd sell it at maybe $10 a carat and then probably pocket maybe 70 to like 80% of that. Mm. And so it was like extremely high margin. Um, It was also like this like a problem that just hadn't been thought of before. Um, and yeah, 
So how did you find all of these suppliers if like the trade shows were closed where maybe you would normally go to make contacts? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my co-founder actually knew quite a few of them. And then um, from there on out, uh, most of these suppliers had a lot more inventory than I guess like they could move at the time because simply trade shows were, I guess, like out. And so like in these trade shows, they would like lug tons and tons of these stones to each trade show and then like try to sell it as much as possible. So for us, it really wasn't the quantity of suppliers, but rather just like the quality of them. Because simply like if we talk with this with a supplier that was big enough, like they might have like maybe like a million to like more than that of stones just like sitting in a warehouse somewhere that they just couldn't move. So they were they were looking for any way to to sell these stones and kind of came exactly yeah. a solution in a box yeah. for them. And then when it came to the demand side, how did you find your first customers and how did you grow? Yeah, so uh, we started off with Instagram and like my co-founder had had an account that had maybe like roughly 15,000 followers. Mm -hmm. And so like we have always had like, I guess like that demand. It just wasn't fully tapped into like utilized. And so when we started the website in like uh, March maybe, like we got moved like 1k in sales for the whole month and then uh by the time like like last month or even like back in august we were doing like well like 50 55 55k a month um in terms of revenue so how do you go from 1k a month in your first month to 50k like six months later uh i think it's still the same uh formula as back when i was working at gravity mm -hmm. like quality plus quantity like quality in the sense that, like hey like uh you had the say best best description so you had the weight the size the uh matrix the color everything about the stone described and then you had like really good pictures and also you just had like pretty good stones um so that was the first piece and then the other piece was quantity where basically like most of the other sellers were like maybe like in their like 60s 65 maybe and these are people who were like very were rather technology illiterate mm -hmm. and so for us really what we had to do was simply push out more stones than anybody else which thankfully wasn't that hard mm -hmm. and so uh yeah like if we look at like our like online competitors like most of them who I guess like deal with freeform, like they can maybe push out like one or two, maybe three K of inventory a week. Mm -hmm. We were maybe doing 15, 20 K worth. And by push out, I mean list. Are you selling these like individual stones, individual gems, or is it like per kilogram? How are people purchasing? Yeah. So it's per stone based. Um, I mean, like there are like small batches of maybe two, three, four, up to 10, if they're really small, but uh, for most of them, it was just each stone in individually, which is like where we get our margin from. How did you handle the logistics of fulfillment, especially? Yeah, so uh, that was mostly my co-founder. Like at the start, it was basically her apartment, mm -hmm. and then uh, 
slowly we built out like a, both the Philippines and also a China-based team mm. where they could either handle the customer service, like the sorting and like the, uh, I guess, like overall uh, processing of all the stones coming in. So all that overseas um, logistics, like fulfillment was set up remotely, I guess, because we're still in. And, um, yeah. How yeah. do you do that? How do you set up something so physical when you can't like physically be there? I think that end and piece there is just trust. Like you just have to trust the people that like you find and then you hire and like without that layer of trust, like a, a lot of this is really hard, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, I think the one thing that like I think uh, we take for for granted today is like like uh say like uh we hire a new employee uh and like they work in the same office as us like we don't really think about it when we give them like let's say like all of the files whereas like let's say like that that employee was like based in i don't know like china or something else then we start thinking about like, hey, like do we really want to send this over simply because like there's this like geographical distance, which I guess like mm. dilutes trust a lot. Um, and I think that's just like the, uh, the, the piece there where it's just like how, like what's the right balance of trust and like how much, I guess, like rope can you give them uh, if you were to like say hire them. So I think uh, one more concrete example would just be like hey like let's give them a goal and then let's just see them like see how they iterate see where they grow and then like let's just like support them rather than tell them what to do mm. and i think uh that's been like it's like what's really it's like driven me whether it was gravity or uh scale or now shine with it was just about like let's find the maximum value of trust let's give it to them and then let's just have them move on from there if that makes sense we've been speaking a bit in the past tense in terms of shine with is that are you still with them are you still like planning to grow together yeah so i think uh the answer to that is no um i think i think the thing that i, I think i really made a mistake on this time was just simply not following what I was passionate about. And I think at the end of the day, like selling stones is not exactly something that like I'm super passionate about. Like mm-hmm. something that I'm that I like wake up in the morning and I'm thinking, oh my God, like today's a great day. And so uh yeah, so I like I actually left roughly like two, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh sorry. Yeah, like I s- started thinking about leaving two or three weeks ago and like we made it official last week and so what's what's next i guess is the question what what do you think um will drive you to what are you pursuing with more passion or what do you hope to accomplish yeah so the answer that is or like the short answer is i don't know Mm -hmm. um the the reason being is like i really haven't really thought about like hey like what makes me passionate up until like this point because like whether it was scale or shine with it just seemed like the right next step for me at the time and like i don't think i've ever like 
had the same amount of passion for either of them as I did back when I was running Gravity. Mm. And so I think uh, the first step is going to be like a process of just exploring things and like seeing, hey, like what really makes me passionate? Like what makes me want to get up out of bed in the morning and just like belt, the, belt these things out and like work on this? Um, I think the the biggest comparison I, I can give you is like, uh, like I mentioned like, hey, like what makes me wake up in the morning? And the reason for that is like, like how really I wake up usually is directly proportional to like how much, like how excited I am, I am, I am about the day. Mm-hmm. So like back when I was doing gravity, I would wake up at six or so every morning. Um, it's been a while since I woke up before nine. Gotcha. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I think uh, that's the first step where I have to figure out, hey, like what really makes me excited. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part here is, I guess, what am I like? What do I, what do I want to do for like the next five to ten, five, five to ten years? And I think that that I guess like goes along the side of hey like what really makes you excited but i think the other part here is like what is opportunity big enough that i would spend like the next five ten years working on um and i don't have an answer for that yet i mean um there's a lot of ideas i'm playing around with but none that have like really stood out to me yet um, Ahmed asks in the chat, he says he has all these ideas and he gets caught in the loop of shiny object syndromes, chasing the new thing. How do you find and validate your startup ideas before like committing fully to them? Yeah, so I think um, the first step is if I can write it down, at least it's something worth pursuing. So like... Uh, the first step whenever I have like a good, like a, like an idea is like, I'll write it down. Like, I, I don't mean like, Oh, like I'll write down here. Like I want to do this, but rather like a full business plan. Uh, although it's not like a full formal one, it's more like, Hey, like what's the problem? What's the end goal solution? If I were to solve this, like what would be like the first, second, third thing that I would do. So like, uh, let me actually pull up one of them and then get, give you an, an example. Give me one second. Um, okay. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Let's okay. So like I, uh, this isn't like a fully fleshed out startup idea, but I think this is like a really good uh, I, idea for uh, I guess like walking you through how how I think. So um, I think the uh, the main problem here, right, like is about trust. Where like whether it's because of politics or otherwise, like really, it's extremely hard to establish the right level of trust in today's society. And so what would be like the end solution, right? 
so I think the first step is to really think about, hey, like, how can we uh, have some sort of medium that r requires a fair, fair amount of trust? And how can we solve that? So uh, one example could be, hey, like, uh, the secondhand movie ticket market where like people need a need a lot of trust like be buying these like tickets mm -hmm. and so now what you have is like this like really big problem and then you've now focused it down to like this like very small i guess like sub problem and then from there you start thinking like okay what is the solution gonna take form into so like the fbi they'd be like hey like well, you could build like a escrow account or, like a escrow service for, like the tickets uh you could also uh look to i guess like uh start to build like profiles on people um and like see like what is the trustworthiness of each person in terms of like selling movie tickets and whatnot and you start from that point and like you see okay like so now that like i have quote unquote solved this like movie ticket problem uh let me move on to like i guess like the bigger problem here where it's going to be about uh maybe building trust in terms of small small transactions so that's so, so that may, might mean like anything on craigslist or whatnot where you don't have this like human to human element where you guys like see each other and, like you give him cash when he gives you the item and so instead you have this like maybe like online element where you have to like guess like trust the pictures and whatnot and so like uh so like, you, you basically build this up from this like small point but you have your end goal in mind of like hey like how can i build better more trust in people um so i don't think like that like answered your question exactly with regards to like hey like uh what what do you do when when you have a lot of different like shiny objects but i think the thing that i noticed for me personally is like mm -hmm. when i have a lot of shiny objects that i'm like seeing and like thinking about usually they have some sort of theme that like they center around whether it's like this like really big problem or like really this like thing that like i like saw like a couple days ago and like made me think more about it and so I start from that point where it's like, okay, like how can I classify all of these like shiny objects under one roof? And then once I have that one roof, I can start thinking about like, hey, like what is the thing that I really, really want to work on first and see if it works out. And then from there, you can, I like, guess, like build a startup or like think about like how you would, how you would want to build a startup. Is that the process yeah. you followed when it came to like um, shine with? Um, yeah, so I think the main thing that like I I was thinking about was actually uh, after my trip to China, I was thinking like, hey, like uh, things are going to be very online for a long time. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, so I went back to China to like visit family, and so I stayed with my mom's side grandmother for like a week or so and then i went to visit my dad's side of the family and then when i went went back to shanghai to like leave then the night before i was planning on staying with my grandmother 
and her building actually locked down entirely. Mm. And so I think when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, like where the heck am I going to sleep? <laughs> um, and so uh, thankfully I have other relatives in Shanghai, but like they weren't really expecting me to like come over. And so it was like a kind of like awkward process. Like that got me thinking about like, hey, like, so like, if this is going to get bigger, like what are things that are going to be impacted, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that like education was one of them. And then like the other part, like before Shine With, I was thinking about like, hey, like, uh, what about like in-person like instruction, such, such as like swimming pools, or, like running or track or soccer or field, right? Like those things are all going to probably shut down. Like, and like, what is the alternative that, exists out there for them and there is nothing mm-hmm. and so i think um i think shine with was like a like sort of a like shortcut it's like solving this like bigger problem of like how do we i guess like live in a remote remote first world mm-hmm. but i don't think like when i first saw like hey like i like things were locking down like my first thought was definitely not hey like let's rethink how we sell stones online. Mm. What was it like um, yeah. getting back? You're in the U.S. now, right? Yeah, yeah. How was yeah, it yeah. Um, like getting out of China and getting back here when, with all of that happening? Kind of scary, honestly. So, like, uh, in my line, when I was uh, trying to come back uh, from China, uh, like a a lot of people were talking about like how like this was like one of the last flights out of China. And that made it really, really scary because it was like, okay, so if I don't get on this flight, I'm kind of stuck in China then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that was the main thing. Um, the other part was, so I had a layover in Japan mm-hmm. um, and what greeted us was like these like full hazmat suit people with like uh, the temperature guns, like mm-hmm. the the ones that like have like a short snub. Although I think at the time it was a bit longer, so it like kind of looked like a real gun, honestly. <laughs> so I was like, okay, like you have these like people like pointing guns at you, and then you're like, okay, like do I walk forward or do I not? At this point, um, yeah. So I think those were the two like biggest m- moments when I was coming back. Like other than that, it was a pretty normal trip yeah pretty normal other than all of that (laughs) yeah exactly i kind of had a similar thing it was in uh spain in march when like italy had Mm -hmm. just locked down and they were about to lock down spain went back to the u.s yeah similarly hectic changing flights and people in scary costumes (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i did I think uh, the combination of things that I guess I like saw in China like made me start to think think at like the back of my mind. Hey, like, what is like the thing that we could do here with regards to like how can we minimize the this disruption that like COVID will bring? Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, yeah, like. I think it's just like you have this like overarching theme at the back of your mind, whether it's like because of like 
recent events or just like ex experiences you, you've had in the past, like that really shapes what you think about in the future. And then mm -hmm. like you start from that point on and then you realize, hey, like what is the path that like, or like what is this like big thing that like really like is eating away at me? And like, why is it like bringing me all these different ideas? And then you realize like, okay, it's like, this is the roof. And then, okay, like, let's find the right pillar. It's like, start, start building it, I guess. What are some of the like general themes you're thinking about now for your next venture? The one that hopefully will take you through the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the biggest one that I keep coming back to is more along the lines of recruiting. Um, so I think the biggest thing that like has been in my mind ever since I sold my company was when I asked people like, or like when, when I asked like people who were in my parent company, what their major was, none of them were like, really like it, like most of the majors didn't really make sense. Right. Like, they're, like, uh, there was this person who majored in psych psychology that was like working as a PM. Mm -hmm. There was this other person that like also majored in Chinese. I was now working as a software engineer. There was this person that like majored in, uh, I don't know, physics that was now working as a PM. And like, it was kind of jarring to like see how mismatched like the skills were. Right? Like it was like you spend four years of your life learning about like, all of the like Chinese like symbols, like dialects. And then now really what you're doing is coding. <laughs> it's like kind of different. And so I think uh, that was like the starting point. Like I've been like thinking a lot about like, hey, like there's probably a lot of talent and time wasted because of just like improper job matching. Like uh, if say like I, wanted to find a job but like i could maybe look up like 200 200 different jobs but then like that would be like the extent of my search because simply like i don't have enough time to like explore every single opportunity and like there might be like a better fit for me somewhere else mm -hmm. but i just wouldn't know where it is what it is and how should i apply um and so i think that's i think the like thing that i want to think about where how can we, I guess, like utilize, like leverage more talent? Um, and like, those are like, uh, yes, like that's like my first thought. My other thought right now is like, um, I think I'm pretty decent, at, like building small businesses uh, from the ground up. So like doing things bootstrap. So like Gravity didn't, didn't take a set of funding un un until I got bought out. Shine With uh, didn't take on debt or any, investments and we were always pretty much profitable as we grew roughly 10x mm -hmm. um and so i think that's a thing here where like i have this skill set um i don't think i want to be limited to like one specific industry anymore so like maybe like i don't know like operating like a bunch of different smaller companies like at once sort of like a firm um an another thought thought that i had um and this goes back to like more venture-based is uh, there's a lot of different ways that I guess like your attention is being captured today. Mm -hmm. And um, 
one of the things I believed in right after I left gravity and I still really truly believe in is that one day like we'll probably be mostly captivated by like a small group of people and like, I think that that's already starting to happen right now whether it's like uh we have our favorite youtuber mm. twi- twitter twitter celebrity and whatnot but even with that i think there's more room for i guess like fi- finer adjustments where like you might just be like watching somebody who has maybe a, a thousand different viewers and, like he or she has a very niche interest and a like, niche personality that just that just attracts you mm-hmm. and uh that's more of just like an overarching thought and like a direction i think the future will hold into and like not so much as a like hey this is a new business idea but i think that there could be some like really enduring businesses that i guess like build on top of this thesis Yeah. Which of those, um, so yeah, so like, or do you see? Do you mm-hmm. see any like intersections between those different themes, or is one of them kind of pulling ahead for you, like demanding more of your your thinking power? Um, I think the first two for sure are d- demanding a bit more of my thinking power. Like, uh, like the third, third one is like barely even fleshed out at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I don't know if like there is one that I really want to do just yet. Like the the other part that I realized is like both with Shine With and also Scale, like I jumped into them relatively quickly and I didn't really give myself time to think about like what I really want to do. And I guess like to put it into perspective, right? Like uh, if we look at like my time at Gravity, uh, really I had the chance to like pull the plug for roughly about a year before I went all went all in and so like i had a year's worth of time to really think about like like, is this something i want to do is this something that that i want to pursue um i don't think i'll have that luxury ever again and so i think i want to be a little bit more cautious when i start my next thing where it's like hey this is something that i for sure want that i like for sure will be spending the next five ten years doing because you know you're going to be jumping you're going to be going full throttle immediately yeah, uh, that and also I think the other part is like, I think I want to do something that like is longer term. Um, I mean, like both Scale and Shine With were roughly eight months. Like I, I've learned a lot and I've done a lot in those eight months. But ultimately, when I think back, I probably gained the most satisfaction working on gravity, building it from scratch basically mm-hmm. and so uh i think that would be my like next thing where i start to think about like hey like uh if i w- was going to do this like i want to be like fully committed from day one and not just like stop at like some point right and i also want to be like sure that like hey like this is the right choice this is what i really want to do um we have another question from the live chat from Mukhtar. He asks, what are your thoughts on micro SaaS products? Uh, can you define So mi- I think he means SaaS? something like um, what you would typically see on indie hackers, like you pick a niche that you're serving with software, maybe it doesn't it's not mm-hmm. gonna be a billion dollar company, but something that's like ten to fifty thousand a month, perhaps. 
10 to 50,000 a month. I think that's a really nice niche. Um, The thing that I think, like, I guess, like, my opinion on it, like, I guess, could it be more more specific? Can you hear me? Um, It's probably a little bit delayed. But Mukhtar, if you want to put some more yeah. details in the chat, we can we can circle back on that. Do you have any um, general yeah. advice for maybe people new to to business and, and startups? Maybe the advice you would have given to, um, to Little Rich <laughs> if, you, if you could talk to him. Write things down. Um, so I used to be the kid in school that would not bring paper and pencil. Like I just wouldn't have a pencil, and I was just like. Is like try to memorize everything. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not what I do now, and I think that like now that I don't do that, it's, it's honestly been been a lot better. Um, and I think that the other piece here is like when you write things down, you can you can always like reference things back. You can always like gain a bit more insight than if you just like memorize things. Less like this doesn't just apply to I guess like your I guess like what you've I guess like learn today but rather like also like what you're thinking about why you made this decision and whatnot so yeah so i think uh that would be my first piece of advice and the other piece of advice is and like this does doesn't just apply to me but also if like everybody is is just do it right like the the i guess like procedure that i follow these days is like uh i first have an idea i write it down by like saying like okay like let's think about this problem and then uh i like maybe like a week later like come back to it if i'm still like very interested and like that still inspires me i'll basically start to like write out like a more business business case for it so like the problem the solution the if i if this was going to be be my business like how would i start what would I do? Take, take take another like two or three days, and then come back to it. If I'm still really excited, then maybe like it's time to actually start putting things in practice. Like that, that might be like hey, like if say I was really excited about the recruiting idea, maybe it's time to talk to some current students. Maybe it's time to start building on a product that like basically says hey, like I'll show you some jobs that you might be interested in um, and just stuff like that. And so I think the core takeaway is it's like, think less, do more. Mm. Um, to circle back to Mukhtar, I think what he's getting at yeah. is, do you see like an increase in successful niche businesses in general, like small companies targeting a, a very specific niche versus um like maybe the the dominance of like google or amazon right that's where most of business is yeah yeah so um i think full disclaimer right like i i i've built two very niche businesses like these are all like something that i guess like most people don't think about slash i guess like most most people don't Mm. care about and so uh with with that in mind um like I'm personally like a really big proponent of like niche things. And I like, yeah, like I think those are probably like some of the coolest opportunities. 
Um, but if you think in like a more macro sense, um, something that's like micro SaaS, like say like it's like a very small opportunity, um, depending on I guess like what the com- complexity to like entry is, it's either something like that, that's going to be like a really good business or like something that's going to be a really bad business. Like, uh, let me try to give an example. So like, uh, let's take shine with, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think what makes us special, like what makes things work is the fact that there is a relatively high barrier to entry to get to the scale that we're at. Like, like you have to, understand the suppliers you have to set up the supply chain you have to find the right demand those are all things that are like relatively non-trivial whereas say like uh if you created a widget in the app store right like for let's say shopify or like the distribution pieces are already solved for you because it just exists within the Shopify app store. But then that also means like, if someone thinks that you have a good idea and like they, they can build it in like, let's say 10, 10, 12 hours coding nonstop, and then they can charge less than you, that kind of sucks. And so I think um, that's the other piece where it's like, like I think a lot of these like niche things are really cool and really interesting, but ultimately what makes things different than like a, project and a business is how hard is it for people to like copy what you're doing like mm-hmm. with gravity it was really really hard for people to copy even the publishers back in china who wanted to launch their us division simply because like we had a very very strong connection with our readers and none of the readers would move over mm. and so what that meant was like they were investing maybe five, 10, 20 X more to acquire one user than we were. And that just like makes the economics so much worse for them. Uh, and like, sometimes it would even like make them not want to pursue down the path of like creating a US branch, which a couple companies tried and then they failed and then they mm-hmm. closed up shop for ex- expansion expansion into the us um but besides that i think the other piece here is like uh i'm really really bullish on i guess these like small projects as a way to like generate wealth Mm -hmm. um i I think my experience with gravity is that like like there's probably no other way time or like I guess to put it a different way, like with just the sales price of Gravity, I was, I basically for my four years at Gravity, I was making at least 500K a, 500K a year. Um, and that's not including my own personal salary or like bonuses. Um, if it wasn't for Gravity, I don't think I would have ever made anywhere near the same amount through my entire career. Like I mm-hmm. might have like become a software engineer and then like made it into like Facebook or Google. And then like at some point in my life, 
made that much, but it's very unlikely that I would have actually been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when we think of that, like see that, right? Like it's like really what these like niche businesses help you do is more in the lines of like social mobility where you now have a chance to be someone who you couldn't be any other way. And I think like that's why I'm like so bullish on like why like this will still happen, like why this is something that I'm really excited about. But also like the reality is like if you can do it and like you can do it like I guess like in a re- relatively s- small amount of time, that means someone else can do that same thing. And so I think there's this I guess like uh like struggle there where it's like you have to do something that's like both small but also takes a non-trivial amount of time to like do well mm. uh, that feels like a really great place to to end it um yeah richard this was awesome thank you so much for for green to come on thanks for everybody who's listening and for all the great questions in the chat um this stream is not going to be available afterwards. It'll get uploaded like sometime next week. So you can look out for that. Maybe share it to your friends who weren't able to make it. Um, Rich, after we end this, do you mind just keeping this tab open for a little bit? And it's going to upload yeah, in the background so that we have like the full quality audio and, and video later. Sounds good. We'll do. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, um, just looking forward to what you do next. Of course. And thank you as well.